Good morning. Good to see everybody. I assure you the pleasure is all mine. Today we're going to be in chapter 4, for the most part, in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible with you, feel free to flip there or use your technology if you have a Bible app. Uh, hey, just want to take a pause here today and just reflect on some, some really cool things that are happening around the church here. We started this book of Acts and we just really wanted and desired that... Um, our congregation would make an investment in reading the Word of God together, and like just blown away. We've been selling out of books, so just excited about what God's doing in this church. And then, like last week, we had you know three people in here in both, all services gave their life to the Lord, and four people kind of renewed their spirits and, and are pointing. And, and I just want to celebrate that. That's just exciting stuff that God does in this church because. I don't know if you're like me, maybe you're like me, my life can be going well, but one negative thing comes along and you're like, oh, help me. You know, that's, so we want to celebrate what God's doing here. Um, so we are going to continue our Acts study. We're going to be in chapter four. I said that already. Um, just so you know, let's review a little bit about what we talked about last week. We said that the mission statement of the book of Acts comes from the first chapter in the verse eight. So let's remember that together. We'll read it together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we said that we found within this verse uh, the power of the church, which is the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the church, which would be to be my witnesses, and then the plan for this early church, which would be Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And from there, we talked about the major functions of the Holy Spirit that we see. One of those major functions is to unify the believers in Christ. And we said that we probably should come to an understanding for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have made a commitment, who have trust our life that Jesus is who he says he is, that we probably should come to this understanding that we're all going to be in heaven someday together. And we probably should start looking past ourselves and trying to find a way to come together as the church. And the other thing that we said is that the Spirit leads us into a daily obedience, and then there are these moments when God clothes us with power on high, and he wants to do great things in us for his name, and we do things that are outside of the norm. And then leaving with a question of, how is the Spirit of God, how is the Holy Spirit guiding your life? And I prayed this week that maybe you would have some really good conversations within yourself, within other people about that topic in your heart. So this week, we're going to talk about the purpose. And the purpose of the church is to be the witness of Jesus Christ in actions and in words. So this is the question that we're going to answer. What does it mean to be a witness? And more so in the way of what does it mean to be a capable witness for Christ? So just a short definition. We who know Christ, right? Well, I should, let me say this. A witness is someone who gives evidence to something that they've seen or heard, or speaks or testifies as proof of what they have seen or heard. And we know this, for those of us who are in Christ, who have been justified by Christ, adopted as children of the Most High God, and are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, are to bear witness to the one who has done for us what we could not. So this is in short, what a definition of what a witness is. Now, if you had desires that this was going to be a five-minute sermon, I'm sorry. I'm going to disappoint you because we need to jump in to figure out how this works in our life. And we're going to use chapter four to do these things. And just to let you know, we're going to be pretty heavy on reading here in the beginning. Um, and then we're going to jump into some context. So just prepared that we're going to read a little bit here in the beginning, and then we're going to dive into some deeper context. So 
we saw in one through three, the spirit fall, the disciples were waiting for a month, it falls, and then a flurry of activity begins to happen. Peter speaks on Pentecost and 3,000 people are baptized. The, 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 the lame was healed by Peter and John, and now Peter goes to the temple and speaks these words, and we're going to pick up in the response after, or he speaks a, a, a bolded sermon, and we'll pick up the events after. Chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So break quite a bit of fascinating stuff that's happening here. The captain of the temple, which is the second in command only to the high priest and some of these Sadducees, appear suddenly as some sort of a security force to confront these believers, and they are, it says, greatly annoyed. And they're annoyed for several reasons. The Sadducees are a religious party. They are a ruling class of the day. It would be good to abstractly think in your brain of the political system that we see today. They are, they are a, a religious party. And the Sadducees, what we need to know about them, are very, very conservative in their theology. They do not believe in divine intervention. They believe that man is on their own. They do not believe in a life after the grave, and they certainly do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So it does, it, it's easy to come to a conclusion why these Sadducees are so annoyed with Peter, who continuously is teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And the other thing that brings some annoyance to them is the fact is that this thing that we call Christianity just seems to not want to go away. One would think that if you killed its leader, you would cut the head off the snake per se, but what they are seeing is a rise in action in the people and the believers of Jesus Christ because they're emboldened by the Holy Spirit and they are teaching actively and living out his commands, and that is quite annoying to them. And so to curtail that, they arrest Peter and John, but here's the amazing thing. They arrest Peter, and what happens? 5,000 people believe and are baptized because they hear the word of God. Incredible. The early church is just booming. We see 3,000 people at Pentecost, and now we put 5,000 to that number here in this story. Conservatively, we've got 8,000 people in the early church, and that's conservative because you know why? It's just men. 8,000 men. Most scholars would say a very baseline conservative number at this in Acts 4. What we're talking about as far as numbers in the early church is between 12 and 15,000 being a super, super conservative number. Explosion is happening in Jerusalem. And these religious leaders are not going to sit around and do nothing. Let's jump back into Acts 4. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, what, by what power or by what name did you do this? So what we have is a picture of these ruling leaders of the day. We have Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and we have scribes who are the, the law experts of the day. They, they have come together in like a semicircle or a circle, and they have placed these gentlemen in the midst of them, 
almost as an intimidation factor. Could you imagine, I, I will just tell you this, if I am surrounded in a circle by a bunch of political figures, law enforcement, and very knowledgeable people, you're gonna see me start to squirm a little bit, like what's going on here? So this is an intimidation factor. And notice in their language this, what we will learn later on, is there is physical proof of this healing of the lame man, because the crippled man is standing next to Paul, or Peter and John, in the temple here. There is no talk within these priests or rulers of the legitimacy of this miracle, because they know it's true, because they see the physical evidence in front of them. What they are doing is asking questions, and I love their question, it says, by what name or by what power did you do this in? This is a baited question. A baited question because they know that. Who's the, who's the authority of the day? Everybody that's in that room confronting Peter and John. And they for sure did not give them the permission or authority to be saying these things or doing these things. So this is them probing with a question to try to find criminal charges to bring against them. And Peter, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to this question very, very eloquently here. So we'll pick it back up, Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which, is, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they confirmed with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, a no for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name." So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened for the man whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So there's a lot of stuff happening here that we need to kind of just break down and talk about a little bit. What we see is Peter, through the Holy Spirit of God, respond to these men in a question in a way that testifies to the words and the works of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job, his job is to point to who? Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Peter is saying some pretty fantastic claims here in front of the people who in all reality expedited the death of Jesus. He talks about his resurrection and then he says this, there is salvation in no one else. There is no name given under heaven amongst men which, which men must be saved. And these rulers and leaders of the day are taken back. I love what they say here. 
Um, are these not uncommon and uneducated men? I mean, these are fishermen in front of us. What are they doing? How can they talk these things? And I love what they, to justify this because they know that these men have not been to any advanced training in any Jewish school anywhere. This is what they say. They, the reason that they, they think they can do that is because they say, oh, he's been with Jesus. And because they are astonished at their ability to speak with boldness and clarity about the crippled man and see him in front of them, they have nothing to say in opposition. They are left utterly speechless. And their attempts to implore Peter to discontinue, to testify to Jesus Christ are met even with a bolder Peter who says, whether it is right in the sight of God, <laughs> to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have heard and seen. And so there are some key truths, some fundamental elements about being a witness that we see present here in chapter four through the testimony of Peter and John. And we, through the Holy Spirit, let us pray that God would stir up in our hearts a knowledge of these things and that he might kick up within us a desire to come aligned with these things. But before we kind of just jump in here and, and break this down, I just want to caution us a little bit in here. I don't know if you're like this. When I read these passages in chapter four, I can quickly become disappointed with who I am. There's a weight and a power that is present here in Acts four that can, can sometimes bring out this feeling of major disappointment that I'm not who these men were. Now listen, the Holy Spirit is there to convict us and it pushes us and it prods us to bring our lives under the word of God, it does that. But let us not read these passages and play the game of comparison that leaves us dejected and uninspired. The Holy Spirit's job is to guide us, to move us, to embolden us, to convict us. For those of us who believe in Christ, who have that faith, the Holy Spirit will never condemn us. And so when we read these things, let us read this in a way that we say, all right, God, how do I get better at this? not in a way that painfully reminds ourselves of what we are not. The biggest takeaway, bar, bar none, that we see in this passage is the, in the nature of Peter is the alignment of his life and his words. One of the reasons that these councilmen have no way to say anything in opposition against these gentlemen is because they recognize within Peter and John things that are not Peter and John. These are not the men that they thought they were. They recognize within him the Holy Spirit, even though they have no idea who the Holy Spirit is because what they see in front of them are people that are speaking with eloquence, with boldness and faith, and they can't figure it out. So what do they say? Oh, he's obviously been with Jesus. So it's important for us to see this and understand they can't say anything in opposition to Peter and John because their lives and deeds match the words that they speak. Their lives and deeds match the words they speak. So they hear the words, but they see the physical evidence of the crippled man in front of them. They're talking, they're, the talk that they're talking about right there is in the walk. They can't say anything against them. So this should tell us that there is power in the testimony of a believer whose words and life match together for people not only to talk the talk about Jesus, but to be able to have them as a physical part of their life in the things that we do. Our talk needs to match our walk, and our walk needs to match our belief. 
in the realm of Christianity, we call the substance of one life, of one's life, the things that we produce fruit. Just as a tree is known by what it produces, an apple tree, an apple, an orange tree, an orange, we who profess Christ will be known by our fruit. What we do, how we act, what we say, what people can see. And it's important for us to know our fruit matters. What our lives communicate about the one that we proclaim matters. Because we are led by the power, the Holy Spirit of God, who will produce within us changed life. Just to use a double negative, it cannot not do it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And, and we remember what Paul said about walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5 last week. This is what he said. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the Holy Spirit inside of us enables us to kill and destroy our fleshly and sinful desires, and then it increases and stirs up within us positive attributes of godly character that we call the fruits of the Spirit. We remember love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that's the Spirit's job. It stirs up with the, us in these, in these areas. And some, here's, here's some hard truth. If there is not any desire within us to allow the Spirit to produce change in our lives. If there is not any desire in our lives whatsoever to bring our lives under the obedience of the Father and His Word, then we are a Christian by name only, and we are not believers. And I don't say that to be a jerk. I don't get great joy about saying those things. I do not want us as believers ever to assume that we're Christians based upon our church attendance, our status as American citizens, or what our parents believe. It is about a relationship. God wants to know you. He wants to change you. He intends to speak with you. He wants to know you personally. We can become experts at lingo and acting like a Christian and having no real power in our lives and bearing no real fruit. We can go through the motions quite easily of being a Christian and all that exists in our hearts is that same self-centeredness, anger, and joylessness. And if you're in the room and that strikes you as maybe you, know this, we're not opposed to that. Oh my word, I love that. Let's be honest. Like, this is what church is about. Let's be honest with where our hearts is, because here's the deal. I do not want anyone to perish based upon an assumption. This is not a cruel thing. The Holy Spirit of God changes our life, and it produces within us a desire to follow him. Let's not ever confuse it, because you cannot give what you do not have, and you can't speak of what you do not know. You can't give what you don't have, and you can't speak of what you do know, do not know. So it's important that we understand that a changed life of the believer solidifies and testifies to the Spirit of God inside of us. And listen, if we would humble ourselves and pray for the forgiveness of our sin and to receive the new life that is in Jesus Christ in his resurrection, God is able to do all of those things in our hearts and more. It is so important, friends, that us as believers today show those around us and the world today 
changed lives that back up the words and the deeds that we do and say. This is part of being an effective witness for Christ. And by far, this is the most important issue that we will talk about today in becoming an effective witness for Jesus. I'm not going to do a how-to list about how we talk to people. It is the power and the knowledge that comes with knowing the spirit who resides in our hearts. However, when I read this passage, there are a couple other things that I notice in Peter in these passages that when I look out into the context of us as believers and myself are sometimes lacking. So there are two thoughts I want to talk about that limit our witness. In this text in chapter four, we see Peter giving a very bold pronouncement, right? He says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a bold statement now or then, and it is an even more audacious remark now. For many of us to speak that phrase would be incredibly difficult, incredibly tough for us because of this reality. We don't want to look foolish. We do not want to look foolish. For some of us, we have this fear that if we really believed the things that Jesus and God teaches us in this word of God, that people will reject us and we will look like a fool. And what limits our witness to Jesus Christ is our belief that sometimes that we need to water down Jesus or soften Jesus, Jesus to make him more palatable to the culture that surrounds us. I love what author and pastor Matt Chandler writes, and this just stirred some stuff up in me this week. He says this, To back away from the teachings of scripture around the issues that our culture finds offensive is to wave the white flag on human flourishing. It is to say that our creator God does not know what is best for his creation, that creation knows what's best for itself. And look, it is quite obvious. There are things that are said and commanded in the Bible that our culture does not agree with. So will we back down to that culture and play the game of, well, you know, God probably didn't intend it to say that. Or, you know, if, if he knew what was happening now, it would, it, he probably, that's just harsh. Or would we put our trust and faith in the Bible, which I'm telling you, friends, has substantial evidence that it is exactly what it says it is. All of the things that are given to us in the word of God are there for the best life possible for God's creation. All the parameters, all the guidelines put in place by a loving God for the benefit of his people. So we do not back down or shy away from some of the commands of God's because we don't want to be viewed as intolerant, judgmental, or foolish. We believe this, that the guidelines that God sets for us in our life are there to bring us in the the greatest and maximum amount of joy within our lives, the greatest peace and unity amongst us. We believe these things and we're not ashamed of them. We hold firm to them, but listen, we are not idiotic about it either, all right? We are not idiotic about this either. We hold tight to them, but we are not cruel and we are not overbearing, we are not trying to just stir up controversy wherever we go, and we're not trying to get people. That is not the nature of Christ. Everywhere we go, any person that we interact with, we have to understand that they have the same needs and desires and fears and hopes that we do. 
We have to treat them like the golden rule tells us to, to treat them as we would want to be treated. We do not want to be the guy or lady that goes around and just tries to insert themselves and stir up disagreement and controversy wherever they go. Nobody likes that guy. Nobody likes that guy. We love people as Christians, and we stand firm to our convictions and our belief. We are not ashamed of them, and we do not apologize for them because we know that they're there paramount to bring flourishing to God's creation. So the second thought that limits our witness is this, is we have little knowledge which brings and leads to little confidence. I have a long-suffering discussion around my house with my wife over her allegiance to the Cincinnati Reds, okay? And I'm just going to be honest, triple-A ball club at best, all right? Triple-A ball club. You guys don't. I, many people are just like, is that a, like a roadside service that he's talking about? I don't get that. She at times becomes heightened and emboldened in her fanhood of the Cincinnati Reds, which I always come back with this question. All right, hotshot, can you name for me one player on their current roster? And it's like, ah, and it's always one of two players. It's Barry Larkin or Chris Sabo, who haven't played for the team in the last 10 years. And then she kind of gets, oh, give me something, right? You know, not some guy that played 10 years ago. And then she just kind of makes the, well, I I love the city. I just love the city of Cincinnati. And I was born there, which look, I'm fine with it. I love Cincinnati too. This should be our skyline chili is amazing, all right? But it doesn't make me a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. And so I find it silly sometimes in, in a fun way that sometimes we believe and, and, and follow things that we have no knowledge about. It's not limited to the Reds, although it probably should be. Is, it, it comes into the realm of Christianity also. There are many of us who, who don't know Christ. We know about him, but we don't know who he is. Craig gave a really great sermon about this just about a month ago on knowing or knowing about Jesus that would be wise for us to review. What we notice in Peter is this. Peter has spent three years learning the teachings of Jesus and experiencing a life together with Jesus. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. And the council at the present time realizes this too because they say this and they recognized that he had been with Jesus. What a great phrase for somebody to say about us, right? And they knew that he had been with Jesus. The only way that they can comprehend the fact that they're bold, clear, who is this, is that they have been with Jesus. Have you ever met somebody that you just know, like, man, that lady, that guy, like, man, they just spend time with Jesus. You can just tell, right? I don't, you guys know that. You've seen it. There's this aroma that comes off of them that is almost different than what you experience in everyday life. And, and Paul talks about this aroma in 2 Corinthians. He says this in chapter 2. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Spending time to getting to know our Savior and what we believe only increases within us belief and confidence and produces within us a sweet aroma to the world. Look, the Spirit of God does some amazing things for us. It will give us words that are our own. It will give us thoughts that we cannot claim. And it would be worth our efforts, however, knowing the Spirit does these things, 
to gain some knowledge about who he is and gain some confidence in our faith. Our faith is what drives our hearts. And it is fed like coal to the fire by our belief in the truth and the beliefs that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and not our emotions. Our faith is fed by the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And he, he did what he said he does. I'm, it's 1146, I'm telling you this. I've probably went through 12 emotions already today. Just a basket case already today of emotions. Do not base your belief in God and your standing with him based upon how you feel that today. It's a tragic and silly circle that we get into. It is our belief in Jesus Christ in his truth that propels our faith. And Paul and Peter writes about us getting to know these beliefs and holding firm in them in Peter, First Peter, he says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. One of the reasons, and probably the major regions, reasons that we're going through the book of Acts together as a congregation is to increase knowledge within ourselves so that we may have confidence in what we believe. But please hear me. Do not let it stop here. Pursue wisdom. Seek knowledge. Get understanding about what we believe. It will serve you well as a witness to Christ, and it will bring you confidence to walk and talk in the way that Christ commands us to. So just to recap these three things that we really notice here in Peter as a witness in chapter four, the most important thing, bar none, right, is that our lives and our deeds match the words that we speak. Our lives and our deeds match the word we speak, and we are not ashamed of what we believe in. God's design is paramount for human flourishing. We, we hold those beliefs firm and with gentleness and respect, but we do not apologize for them. And get to know the person that we believe and trust in, and it will do us well to increase our confidence in our faith. I love, I love what Peter says. He says, for I cannot but speak of what I've heard and seen. Sometimes we get into this realm where, where we, we, we believe in these things and, and it's really sacred to us and it means something inside of our hearts and we internalize it and we process it, but, but what we do is we hold those spiritual convictions and we hold that sacredness and, and we just claim it as our own private possession. And look, I'm, I'm so thankful that you have a belief, but, but we're called to be more than that. I mean, Jesus speaks directly to this in Matthew 5 when he says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We love, and, and I love this quote by St. Francis of Assisi. It's a beautiful quote. It says, preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. Great phrase. Love it. But let us not use this quote as an excuse to never talk about our faith. We are to proclaim to the world, as difficult and as uncomfortable as that seems for us, the mighty works of Christ Jesus as the Spirit testifies within us. And believe this. Being a witness is more about seizing an opportunity than, and less about having an agenda. It is more about seizing an opportunity and less about having an agenda. And I say this because sometimes we believe to be an effective witness 
that we have to have an agenda or talking point to really communicate to people what's going on. When I was a campus life director, my favorite thing in the world was on, on the days that I didn't have to sell a trip or an event to go into the lunchroom and I would just pray before I went in that, God, would you just bring an opportunity my way where I could just love a kid, I can just encourage him and pray for them. And, and I'm telling you, I would just go into the lunchroom and I would sit at kids' tables and, and we would talk about a variety of things, but never a day passed that an opportunity did not come my way to tell a kid a, a word of love, a word of truth, to pray for a student, to encourage a student, and sometimes to lovingly correct a kid whose attitude was far less than what I should, thought it should be. But opportunities always came my way. Because here's the reality. This is a great thought for us. We know that we live in a broken world, and it is full of broken people. And when we associate ourselves with broken people in a broken world, opportunities to witness about Christ in our life and the life of Christ will come our waves in droves if we are open to the opportunities. A great place for us to start in being an effective witness would be to recognize the opportunities that God has given us in this broken world with the broken people that we associate ourselves with and love and care for. Maybe there are many of you in this room or some of you in this room that know that there is a loved family member or a lost friend that you need to be ministering to. And maybe there are members of the congregation that need to consider this question. Are there opportunities for us to be a witness that we are running from? Are there opportunities for us to be a witness that we're running from? If so, my prayer for you this week is that God would stir up these things that Peter exemplifies for us in here, that we would desire to get our life and deeds together, that we would want to gain knowledge, and we would not be ashamed of what we believe, that God would heighten those things in our hearts, and we would have a desire to do those things. And then we learn from the, the believers here at the end of chapter 4 that what they did, they, they prayed and listened to the Spirit, and they prayed for boldness, and they walked in it, and they didn't apologize for it. So let's listen to the Spirit, pray, and walk in it. A great place for us to leave this service today is just to take a moment that God, and, and pray to Him, talk to Him, that He would increase within us a desire to be a witness for Him, that God's Spirit would stir up and kick the tires on this area of being a witness, and that He would show us with our own eyes opportunities for us to proclaim his mighty name. So let's pray together. Father, I just come before you today and I just thank you. Like, just love the truth that you bring in scripture. Let our hearts never tire of it. God, I just pray for all of our hearts, Lord, that you would use your spirit, the Holy Spirit, that he would just stir up within us a desire to bring our lives under the authority of this, under the submission of you, Father, that we would move closer to the nature of you in this area of witnessing, Lord, that you would stir up our hearts a desire to bring our lives and deeds together, that you would stir up in our hearts a desire to get to know you, and you would give us the confidence and boldness to not be ashamed about what we believe in you. And Lord, help us to see with our own eyes opportunities to witness to your gospel, to witness to your nature this week in our lives, in our families, and in our friends. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who does for us what we could not. Amen.